tonight we continue our study of the doctrine of hell. And as I've um, already told you, we come tonight to the book of Revelation. And what I want to do tonight is uh, something like this. There's a, there's a roller coaster that Zach and I have not gone on yet, um, but we, we want to go on it, and maybe we'll go on it at some point. And this roller coaster is a little different than other roller coasters in this sense. Sometimes you go on a roller coaster, and it's kind of a slow journey upward, right? That sound and you're kind of, it's a slow journey upward. There's this roller coaster where basically you get on it and shortly after you get on it, you like just shoot out and you just start going. That's kind of what we're going to do tonight in our study of the doctrine of hell in the book of Revelation. We are just jumping right in. We have five passages to look at. We are going to get into those passages. We're going to walk through them together. You have the handouts before you so you could refer to those. Note, I will be referring to oftentimes to some other verses that are around those passages or in other places of the scriptures, but those passages will be um, our focus. So we begin tonight in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11, where we read, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name." In this passage, I want us to look at three things. We're really going to look at more than three things, but at least under three headings, I want us to consider the text before us. The first would be, who will experience the judgment of God described in this passage? We're going to look at that first. Second, I want us to see the divine fury that awaits the unrepentant and unbelieving. And third, I want us to see the eternal nature of eternal punishment I think all of those things are either in the text or the text, are, the text is a springboard to consider those things. So first, let's start with verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. Then a third angel, because two previous angels have preceded this angel, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, and then the punishment is described in what follows. Now, someone could mistakenly say, okay, the punishment that's described in Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11, this is a punishment that is reserved specifically and only for those who take the mark of the beast and those who worship the beast. Now, there are some out there who could come to that wrong understanding. That would be a very wrong assessment to make. While that group and those people are immediately in view in this text, The punishment that's described in Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11, is not limited to that that group. How do you know that? I just want to share this with you very simply so you know. How do you know that? You know that because when you go on a little bit later, and we'll get to these passages later on, when you go to Revelation 20, verse 15, you see that all, all whose names are not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. You see that it's in the lake of fire. We'll see this in Revelation 20, verse 10, where there is torment that's going on forever and ever. You see in Revelation 21, verse 8, for instance, that all liars and others that we're going to look at, they have their part in the lake of fire. You might even remember that Jesus talks about the lake of fire in the sense of referring to Gehenna, that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. But he says in Matthew 25, verse 41, Depart from me, you accursed. Speaking to those goats who are on his left hand. They will endure everlasting punishment. And we see that in Matthew 25, verse 46. So Matthew 25, verse 41, and Matthew 25, Verse 46. So why do I say that? Do not have the misunderstanding when you look at this text and you say, okay, this is only speaking about those who take the mark of the beast and those who worship the beast. They're the only ones who ultimately will be in the lake of fire. There are some people who would come to that erroneous conclusion. I do not want you to be among them. Second, I want you to note, if still looking at verse 9, I would want you to see this, but this would apply to the entirety of the 
passage that you have before you as well. Don't underestimate the help of this warning. This is a warning. Within the context of Revelation, this is a warning. This is an angel who is providing this announcement, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and so on, this is what's going to happen. And I don't want you to underestimate the help of this warning. I mean, Jesus used this kind of language. You can look at Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, when Jesus was telling his disciples to not fear him who can kill the body and do no more, but fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. I think we need to be very mindful of the doctrine of hell um, as the people of God, but especially when the prospect or the reality of persecution is at a believer's front door. To know that the people of God have an eternity of bliss that awaits them is motivation. To know that Christ has died for us is motivation to stay the course. But also the word of God uses the reality of hell to help protect us from apostasy. Ultimately, God is keeping us, but God also uses His warnings as a means to His appointed ends. So all who take the mark of the beast, you can imagine, especially in the days leading up to Christ's return, all the pressure that people who are in Christ will feel leading up to Christ's return. And it's as though this warning should be ringing in a Christian's ears long before an angel sounds it. To say, I know what's on the other side of that mark. There may be some short-term relief. There may be some economic exchange that I'll get to participate in. I may be able to satiate a hungry stomach. But I know on the other side of that mark is the full wrath of God's fury. So I don't want you to underestimate the help that these warnings are. And indeed, they are warnings. As a matter of fact... Quoting from the ESV in Revelation 14, verse 12, which comes right after the passage before you, Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11, right after that, the text says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus or the faith of Jesus. The saints during that time, as the saints during any time, will know that retribution will come to the wicked. And so the people of God patiently endure. Patient endurance is called for in Revelation 13, verse 10 as well. If you were to go to Revelation 13, you would see after describing the persecution that believers will suffer at the hands of the beast. Revelation 13, 7 comes a call to patient endurance. Revelation 13, verse 10 Here is the patience, or the perseverance, or the steadfastness, and the faith of the saints. As one commentator wrote, to be a saint is to obey God and to believe in Jesus at all costs. Whether it involves losing your life, whether it involves losing your head, you know what's on the other side of suffering to the point of death for Christ's name. Absent from the body and present with the Lord awaiting for a resurrection of the body and enjoying the new heavens, new earth, enjoying bliss and eternity with God, angels, and saints forever. But on the other side of the relief of idolatry is suffering that never ends. So don't underestimate the help that this is. It's as though the angel is announcing to the world there is an end that is far worse than death. That's what hell is. It's an end that is far worse than death. Let us look at verse 10 now. I want you to see what God has revealed to us in His Word concerning the divine fury that awaits those who persist in unrepentance and unbelieving. The text reads, He Himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of His indignation. Now I want you to see something here. If you look at verse 10, and then if you were to go back, you might want to jot this down on your note page. If you were to go back to verse 8, you would see what I think is a contrast between the temporary intoxication of Babylon's wine, Revelation 14.8, with the forever nature of the wine of God's wrath, Revelation 14, verse 10. Babylon... The world system, its pleasures and intoxication is temporary. 
as is Babylon's fury against the people of God. That too is temporary. But God's holy wrath, as we see right here, it's a forever fury. It's a relentless fury. It's a holy, just, and righteous, relentless, ongoing fury. You see this expression, to drink the wine of the wrath of God, it's an image that's used uh, quite a few times in the Scriptures. It's used in Psalm 75, verse 8. It's used in Isaiah 51, verse 17. It's used in Jeremiah 25, verse 15. It's as though somebody would drink the cup of God's wrath and would reel with torment from it, never being able to exhaust it, but forever drinking of it. Look at the language here. This wine, the wine of God's wrath, is poured out full strength. Poured out full strength. More literally, as Marvin Vincent notes, mingled, unmingled. Or mingled, unmixed. Or having been mixed, undiluted. What is that meant to connote? I think you probably have already gathered what it's meant to connote. It's meant to connote that God's wrath is poured out in, in an undiluted fashion. Whereas in the ancient world, for instance, wine would be watered down with water and so as to dilute the wine. There's nothing that dilutes the wrath of God when it's poured out. When it's poured out, and we think particularly in the lake of fire, it's poured out and it's not diluted. It's not diluted by grace. It's just wrath. There's no hope to dilute it. There's just wrath. There's no mercy to dilute it. Just wrath. And again, the context of this is that it's a warning. This is important for Christians to know because as you know what God's revealed, you better understand the mind of God, the will of God, and so on. But remember, this is a warning. God isn't hiding this from men and women. That the moment is coming where His wrath will be taken down undiluted. And it's similar to, I know Luke 16 is speaking about Hades. Um, speaking about the punishment that is happening right now, as opposed to Gehenna, the lake of fire, and so on. But nonetheless, I do think it's similar, at least what we're getting a picture of here, it's similar to what's depicted in Luke 16, in the sense that the rich man did not even have access to a drop of water to cool his tongue or to lessen the torment of the flames. There's a coming retribution for sin. That as I've told you many times before, and I say it now, it can only be escaped through faith in Christ. The only way to escape the wrath of God is through the grace of God. The only way to escape the punishment, the righteous punishment of God, is through the Lamb of God, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By repenting of sin, not offering one's allegiance to the beast, or to self, or trusting in self, but trusting in the person and work of Christ alone. This wrath is undiluted, and I can't help but think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as I read through these words. I thought of how our Lord and Savior, if you will, drank down the wrath of God in an undiluted fashion on the cross for us. You might remember in Mark 15.23, we're told that they gave Him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but He did not take it. Matthew 27, verse 34, describes it as sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This was a pain-numbing tonic. And as our Lord and Savior is on the cross, he refused the pain-numbing tonic. He didn't have it to dilute his pain. I think it's emblematic of the fact that he was drinking down that cup that he was praying to his father about in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think there are practical reasons as well why, why he didn't drink it down. Because he needed to be fully alert to say what he was going to say to John, to say what he was going to say to his mother, to say what he was going to say to his father, to say what he was going to say to the thief on the cross. I think he needed to be fully alert. But I also think it's emblematic of the fact that he drunk down the full cup of divine wrath and he exhausted it and only he could exhaust it. But he drank it down undiluted. He took the punishment on our behalf. Concerning the fury of God's wrath, look still, we're still at verse 10, look at the language. The cup of His indignation. Orges is the word for indignation there in the Greek. It's a word, you go through it in the New Testament, you see it means 
wrath. It means anger. It means indignation. Um, I think it's helpful to note um, one concordance, uh, the Strong's Help Concordance, had noted that it comes, uh, the word orges, comes from the word um, orgao. And then um, it had noted, which means to swell and rise up in fixed opposition. And the implication may very well be, in light of that word, um, that God's wrath is not a sudden outburst. It's a kind of proper, measured indignation. That when the cup is filled to the top, then in proper time it comes. But when it comes, so you have mixing metaphors here, when it comes and it's poured out, there's only one who could exhaust the wrath of God, and that was Jesus Christ. Everyone else who persists in unbelief will drink from that cup from forever, never being able to exhaust it. More strong language. This is how God has revealed to men and women and to his church what is coming. He wants you to know what is on the other side of apostasy. He wants you to know what's on the other side of unrepentance and unbelief. He says that such ones will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, there's quite a few things to say here. First, I want to let you know how some wrongly interpret this passage, um, wrongly applying a passage from Isaiah 34. So let me make reference to that and we'll give you some notes concerning this passage. There are some people who say, when you look at this passage, it is wrong to think of God's punishment being eternal and unending. They would argue that God's punishment is not of an eternal nature. It's not of an ongoing conscious nature. It is rather for a certain period of time and then it ends. This would be the position of those who advocate what's called annihilationism. That a person will cease to exist at some point after death and after the resurrection of the dead. So what some people do is they'll go to um, Isaiah 34, verses 9 and 10, and they will say, look, the language that you see right here in Revelation 14, it's similar to language that God uses in Isaiah 34 concerning the destruction of Edom. Edom likely in that context being a representative of the nations. There the text says this, its streams shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone, its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day, its smoke shall ascend forever. From one generation, from, from generation to generation, it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. So, a person who espouses the doctrine of annihilationism, saying, look, Hell is not forever. At some point, a person will cease to exist. They might say something like this. Revelation 14 ought to be read in light of Isaiah 34. And their argument would be, Isaiah pictures the historical annihilation of Edom because of her sin. And then once destroyed by God's judgment, Edom would never rise again. And so they would say, in light of that, it's a representation of what will happen to unbelievers. That just as Edom has passed from um, the scene of history, so unbelievers will pass from the scene of existence, you might say. But the problems with these views um, are many. So one problem with that is the word for torment. You see that language in the text? He shall be tormented. That word that's used there in the New Testament Greek, it's used 12 times. Every single time it is used, it always refers to a conscious experience. It never refers to something that is not actually experienced by someone. The word describes grievous pains like waves of pain battering an individual, and in this case, relentlessly. Um, Robert Morey notes, and we emphasize that sulfuric fire in this text does not annihilate the wicked, but torments them. If you just look at the text, you say, how does the text interpret itself? The fire doesn't annihilate. The fire is actually, according to the text, providing torment, pain, or grievous pain. Robert Peterson notes, this refutes the annihilationists' claims that the main purpose of fire in judgment is to destroy. To the contrary, its main purpose is to inflict pain as this text shows. 
And we've already seen that in our, in our study of the doctrine of hell. You go back to the very last verse of the book of the prophet Isaiah when he says there that their worm does not die and the fire does, is not quenched. Why does the worm not die? Because there's always a carcass, if you will, a resurrected carcass, if you will, to forever feed upon. Why does the fire not end up being quenched? Because the fire always has something to feed upon. So for those reasons and more, I would say it's a very wrong uh, view to take that position. Some claim that the smoke ascends forever as a perpetual testimony to God's destruction of the wicked. And to which, if you just think that through, you'd say, okay, wait a minute, smoke would not rise if there was no fire. And we know the expression, right? Where there's smoke, there's what? There's fire. So smoke wouldn't rise if there was no fire, and fire would not burn unless it had something to consume. The smoke is connected with ongoing punishment, torment, grievous pain, day and night. And then you have this language here. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And you have different, um, different viewpoints here as to how this actually works itself out. A uh, pulpit commentary, for instance, suggests that the purity and bliss of heaven is visible to the wicked and the sight of it combined with the knowledge of its sin, accessibility to themselves, is part of the torment. Um, this seems to have been in the Jewish mind to some degree in what's referred to, it's in the non-canonical writing, 4th Ezra chapter 7 verse 36, it states, The furnace of Gehenna shall be disclosed and over against it the paradise of delight. So there are some in the history of the church, there are some in Jewish thought who have that belief. Um, another possibility, which I think is more immediate, and we could say this with definitude, um, the angels, as well as the Lamb, are present right there at the judgment when the judgment happens. Um, Christ is the judge, and you might say the angels are, in one sense, the executioners, or they are executing the carrying of the unrepentant to that execution. You see that kind of imagery in Matthew 13, verses 41 um, and 42, when Jesus said, The Son of Man will send out His angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast, him into, cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can't forget, though, also, that the punishment that will be inflicted in Gehenna, the lake of fire, will be in one sense apart from the Lord, outside of His presence in a certain sense. But it will also be the inflicting of the righteous, holy wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb upon those who persist in unbelief and unrepentance. And having called your attention to this a little bit more, look at the uh, eternal nature of this eternal punishment further described in Revelation 14, verse 11. Here we're told that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So we've already touched on the idea of the smoke of torment ascending forever and ever, which I think very clearly suggests the reality of eternal conscious punishment and pain. But look, how this, look at this further description. And they have no rest day or night. It further helps us understand what the pains of hell include. A kind of ongoing restlessness. You think about it. When we're feeling horrible, right? What, what do we look for? I, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to try to get to sleep. And then hopefully I could just get a little bit of respite when I close my eyes and fall asleep. And you've known, if you've had like a headache that's really bad, and it's like you're, you're in such pain and you can't even fall asleep because you're so uncomfortable. Or you have a fever and your body's just so uncomfortable you can't fall asleep. And you're trying not to take Motrin or you're trying not to take Tylenol or something like that. But you just can't rest. But then you take it and all of a sudden you get some relief and you're able to fall asleep. The description here is that you never in hell have that. There's no rest. 
day or night. There's no sleep. There's no IV that numbs the pain. There's no break from the pain. There's no passing out from the pain. There's no rest day or night. And what makes this so sad, and this is why... um, This is why we should get on our knees and praise God and thank Him for the gospel because we, by God's grace, by God's grace, have received Jesus' invitation to receive from Him what? Rest. Among other things, rest. You have a contrast. Just studying this text within its context, you would see right here in Revelation 14.11 a little bit of a contrast with what believers can anticipate. And you see this in Revelation 14 verse 13. In Revelation 14, verse 13, John writes, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now just imagining especially, this is true for believers in all times. When a believer dies, a believer enters into his or her rest. You rest from your labor. You rest from pain, and then you're in the presence of your Lord and Savior forever. But think of how important and helpful this is for believers, especially in the kind of context that's described in Revelation 14. When you have those who are taking the mark of the beast, you have those who are worshiping the beast, and you know what they get? Temporary rest. They get food on the table. They get temporary rest. They don't get their heads chopped off. They don't get to suffer pain, at least for some time. They do suffer different pains in different ways in the book of Revelation. But nonetheless, they get some measure of rest. And a believer is undergoing all of this affliction within this context. A believer knows his or her life could be gone at any moment. They could be headed at the hands of those who are worshiping the beast and his image. And it's as though the Lord through John right here is telling his people, no, 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 no. On the other side of their short term rest is never ending unrest but if you endure that pain if you are faithful to the point of death on the other side of death is rest rest forever enjoying the presence of almighty god and as though to accent the point did you catch what happened in that text the holy spirit accented what was said the holy spirit says yes Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. This is a call, among other things. It's a warning and it's a call for believers to endure to the end. And if you are a believer, you are called to endure. And if you are a believer, you will endure. Because your endurance is not dependent upon you ultimately. It's dependent upon the faithful shepherd who doesn't lose any of his sheep. Um, Briefer comments will come with the uh, remaining passages that we'll look at. Um, Let's look at Revelation 20, verse 10. We'll further fill out a little bit more the doctrine of hell as we see it in the book of Revelation. Um, I know with some of these references, I'm not providing the um, amount of context that I could. I will try to provide a little bit of that context in these different passages, but... I want you to see what it says about the doctrine of hell uh, in these passages. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So first, who do we see in Revelation 20, verse 10? The devil. The devil. This is the end, if you will, of the devil's story. Not the end of his existence, but this is it. This is where it ends for him. Not his existence, the torment and existence will continue, but this is the moment right here where he is finally cast into the lake of fire. Now, if you just followed, regardless of your positions with with regards to the millennium, if you just follow the outworking of Revelation chapter 20, you are reminded... That this devil, even you go back to Revelation chapter 12, that he was the one who was cast from heaven, Revelation 12, 9. He's the one who is cast into the abyss, Revelation 20, verse 3. But then as you go through Revelation 20, you see that he's released for a time. And the language that's used is that he was in the abyss for a thousand years, and he doesn't come out reformed. 
Right? He's not coming out changed. Like, I've had a thousand years to think about it. Regardless of what you think about the thousand years, we're just taking the text and we're reading it through. A thousand years in the abyss, the bottomless pit, has got a chain, it's covered in there, and he comes out of that place, and he doesn't come out reformed or changed, desiring to make amends, turn over a new leaf. Nothing like that. He comes out, and his business is to deceive the nations. And to lead them in rebellion against God, which ends in not even a battle, it's basically a showing up for judgment. And he ends up being cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. I think, just as a little bit of a side, I wouldn't build the totality of the, of the case for this on this singular verse and the context I just provided to you. But for those who think that if you leave a being in a place of ongoing judgment and torment, eventually that being will decide to amend his or her ways. I think here you have an exhibit A example of that not being the case. That in God's word, the picture that is set forth is even you take this being, you put this being in a prison, and when he comes out, he will not come to a place of reformation. Because the only way to escape the wrath of God is the grace of God. Um, Now, a couple other notes here, apologetic notes for you all. There are those who believe that the devil will suffer torment forever, but human beings who persist in rebellion and unbelief will not. But as you might imagine, there are numerous problems with that. One, right in here, Revelation 20, verse 10, the beast and the false prophet are described as being in the lake of fire as well. But you won't be surprised to know that there are people who say the beast and the false prophet aren't actual individuals. They're just representatives of systems. Well, then you might respond by saying, okay, well, aren't those systems comprised of individuals? And then somebody might say, yes, but it's the system that gets destroyed and not the individual in the lake of fire. To which I would tell you, remember that Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, that individuals who are on his left hand, those goats, the ones who he called the accursed, they were going to the place that was prepared for the devil. They were going to that place. And what's, what's, what's the nature of being there? Jesus described it as well, again, in Matthew 25, verse 46. Everlasting punishment. Not to mention similar, tormented forever and ever language. Similar, it's not exact, but similar language is used in the passage that we just studied together in Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. Furthermore, anyone not written in the book of life, as I've already told you, is cast into the lake of fire. Uh, I think Gregory Beale makes a, a great point. If you were to look at the language that's used here, Revelation 20, verse 10, Um, When it says, and they, speaking of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen to what he says. I think it's an excellent point, tracing the use of language um, through the book of Revelation. He says, the reality of an unending suffering of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet in 2010, uh, Revelation 20, verse 10, is borne out by observing that the phrase, unto the ages of the ages what we see here as forever and ever, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, refers to the eternal reign of God, Revelation 11.15, the eternal power and glory of God, and he provides references for that, 1.6.5.13.7.12, the eternal life of God, Revelation 4, verses 9 and 10, 10.6.15.7, or of Christ, chapter 1, verse 18, and the eternal reign of the saints. He goes on to note, in particular, the use of the same expression to connote explicitly an unending reign for the saints in Revelation 22, verse 5, must mean that the very same temporal phrase in 2010, only about one chapter earlier, refers to an unending period. Let's look at Revelation 20, um, verse 15. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You remember the context in which this is happening? The context in which this is happening is what? The great white throne. What color is the throne? White. 
What does white usually connote? Purity. I think at least part of what we're meant to understand by this great, this big, glorious, great white throne is that it is a pure and just and righteous throne. God cannot do evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. He's light in whom there is no darkness. And I think that's meant to remind us that this judgment that is coming is a holy, right judgment. When the books are opened, and you see that in the, in the, in the previous text, you see that the dead, um, the dead, all, all different individuals, whether they were small, seemingly insignificant, whether they were great, people of great renown, and, and were famous and so on, nobody's excluded. All of the dead are standing before God, and the books are opened. You might say in one case there's the books, and then there's the book. There's the books that has a record of all the works of these individuals and the sentence that ensues in light of that. And then there's the book of life. And we're told right here that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The temporal period of punishment gives way to the eternal period of punishment. The first death is no more. Hades is no more. There's no need for that. There is no more first death. There's only the second death. There's no more Hades. There's only the lake of fire. And anyone, again, I tell you, who's not found written in the book of life, having by the grace of God trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are thrown into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. Um, Revelation 21, verse 8. We're told, but the cowardly, the cowardly. I'm going to use some descriptions that are um, provided by one writer, um, the cowardly, those lacking courage to stand for God. It's, it's, it's those who are not, as the, the Bible often refers to, overcomers. They're not the ones who overcome. Cowardly, at the front of the list, as a reminder to the Christians, do not be apostate. Don't shrink back. Confess Christ before men, even if it costs you your life. Because on the other side of that short pain will be you awakening to the bliss of seeing Christ face to face. But the cowardly, those who shrink back, God's soul will have no pleasure in such ones. You don't shrink back. That's not who you are. And you don't trust in yourself. You trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to preserve you and keep you. The cowardly are ones who will be cast into the lake of fire. But look who else? The unbelieving. Unbelieving. So those who have rejected the gospel, who have rejected Christ, as a result, they've lived in unfaithfulness. So they're unbelieving and they persist in unfaithfulness. Then there's the abominable. Uh, abominable speaks of uh, that which God hates, an abomination, is that which is detestable to God, that which he hates. So who are the abominable here? It's, it's basically a description of individuals who ongoingly practice those things which are an abomination to the Lord. Uh, they practice the things that God hates. Um, we'll see even more about that um, here, because this uh, doubtless overlap. We know God hates murder. Uh, murderers are described as those who are here. Murderers, people who assault the image of God in man. The sexually immoral. And there's overlap with the abominable there. Because we know that things in the scriptures like homosexuality, like bestiality, these things are an abomination to the Lord. We know that even according to Deuteronomy, that a man who dresses like a woman or a woman who dresses like a man raises his or her fist at God's design in making them the way that he has made them. That's an abomination in his sight. And here we have the sexually immoral described, those who persist in sexual sin and ongoing impurity. They look at God's standards for purity and they reject them. They raise their fist against them. I'll do it my way. Sorcerers, so all those who practice witchcraft, those who are mediums, those who practice magic arts in an unrepentant fashion, such at ones as with everyone else will be thrown into the lake of fire. Idolaters, um, all liars, 
So those who have lying as a kind of ongoing practice of their lives, they do and practice a lie, shall be burned with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Which is the second death. I think part of what is happening here is that the Apostle John is showing how righteous God's judgment is. Who are the ones who go to this place? It's as though John is giving a little short list here to say such ones who raise their fist at God and continue doing the things that he hates without repenting. Don't miss, by the way, what comes right before this list in verses 6 and 7. Revelation 21, you might want to jot this down, verses 6 and 7. John writes, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And then you get this description. As though to say, if you thirst, if you say, I am a sinner and I thirst for forgiveness, I am unrighteous and I thirst for righteousness, I feel the weight of my guilt and I thirst for relief, I thirst for forgiveness, Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to the Father through the Son and you will drink freely of the water of life forever. You will never know the kind of thirst that is depicted in Hades by the rich man in Luke 16. Forever you will drink. Forever you will experience refreshment in the presence of God. He who overcomes. God knows it's not easy for us. He knows that we are going to have to overcome to get to the other side. And he says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. On the other side of suffering, on the other side of pain, the meek shall inherit the earth. The joint heirs with Christ, the heirs of God, shall inherit all things. Imagine walking out in this world, walking out onto the land and saying, this is my Father's world and He's given me the entirety of this world to enjoy. The whole property deed is mine to partake in, of course, under the auspices of His perfect eternal ownership. But He has called me an heir of His and a joint heir of Christ. Which is a good reminder, why strive for the pittance of whatever you could attain in this life and why not store up treasures forever? Why try to build bigger silos when you can go hard at serving the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to inherit everything. So why can I grow in the grace of not holding on to stuff? Oh, what precious promises. And finally, I call your attention to one more passage. Revelation 22, verse 15. But outside, outside of where? Outside of the new Jerusalem. Outside are dogs. Um, it's loaded language. If you're familiar with the Scriptures, you have probably have a bunch of Scriptures coming to your mind. You might recall that um, Jewish people often thought of the Gentiles as being dogs, as unclean. Um, that language is used there uh, with respect to them. You might think of uh, Philippians 3, 2, thinking of the Judaizers. Paul kind of turns that idea on its head and says, well, the Judaizers, no, no, those who say that you need to have circumcision to be saved, or those Jews who are persecuting Christians, you think th those ones are the ones who are actually the dogs. You see that in Philippians 3, 2. You might say, well, the dogs are those who um, persecute believers when they don't like what they're hearing, the truth. You see that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6? Uh, many, many believe, and I think there's a lot to this, that dogs are a kind of equivalent for sodomites or male prostitutes when you look away at the way the language is used in Deuteronomy 23, verses 17 through 18. So outside of the New Jerusalem are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So again, I want you to see as we close some contrasts here. The contrast is they're on the outside. Like right outside the city on the new earth? No, no, no. You know you, it's already been depicted multiple times in Revelation they're outside in what the Scripture describes as the lake of fire. So why use the language of outside? Because they're outside of the city. Outside of this holy city where God has made His dwelling among His people. I mean, the apex, think about this, the apex of what makes heaven heaven is what? 
God. Christ. That's what makes heaven heaven. That's what makes the new earth and everything that we would enjoy forever. What makes it the most heaven for us is the fact that God is there. Well, in contrast to that, being outside of enjoying God is where these individuals are. And that in itself is torturous. If you think of being in the presence of God as as the highest joy, then you say being outside in outer darkness involves, doubtless, the greatest pain. Right now, we're living in light of God's common grace, and if we are in Christ, we're living in light of God's saving grace. But these are outside. Outside. So access to God versus distance from God. In verse 14, the verse right before this, you might want to jot this down so you could reference it. John writes, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates, by the gates into the city. That's the contrast. Those who have washed their robes, you go back in Revelation 7, you see how you wash your robes. You make them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's by grace through faith and you trusting Christ. Um, There's a little nuance of the past tense that's used there and the present tense that's used here. If I was preaching expositionally through Revelation, we can go through some of that. Um, But I'd call your attention right now to two closing verses. Verses 16 and 17 of Revelation 22 read like this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. So right after that verse that was just on the screen, Revelation 22.15, right after that, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Who wants you to know about these things? Jesus. Jesus wants you to know about these things. Why is it important to sit through classes on the doctrine of hell? Because Jesus wants you to learn about the doctrine of hell. Jesus didn't reveal these things so that we could just know about them and then not really spend time looking at them because they're too hard to look at. No, Jesus wants you to see these things. Who wants you to see them? Jesus wants you to see them. You grab that right from Revelation 22, 16. And then he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I love that language. You know I love that language. He's the one who proceeded from David and he's the one who preceded David. He is the one who is the Messiah who came from the loins of David and he is the I Am who was eternal long before David. He's the bright and morning star. Bright and morning star. That star that would break the dawn. Many note that to be um, Venus. And all of a sudden in the darkness of morning, all of a sudden there's light. It's like hope piercing darkness. Jesus, the day spring from on high. And then look at this language. What a way for us to end our study tonight. The Spirit and the Bride say what? Come. Come. You hear this and part of you is just yearning for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. It's part of it. When you you read the totality of what's going on in the verses that precede it, new heavens, new earth, and so on, and let him who hears say, come. That will be our response. But watch this. There's also an invitation. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's as though as you approach the very end of the book of Revelation, there's an invitation. You've seen what awaits the unrepentant. But if by the grace of God you thirst for righteousness, you thirst for forgiveness, you thirst for hope, come, come. I mean, I'd be surprised if anybody in this room right now does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe at some point there will be somebody who will be listening to this who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But whether there would happen to be somebody in here or somebody who will listen to it, if you thirst by the grace of God for hope, for forgiveness, for eternal life, to not have a fear of death, to know on the other side of the death will be Christ and not unending torment, I say to you what the Scripture says, come, drink, drink freely. It will cost you nothing. In one sense. It may cost you everything in another sense. Cost you your life. But this drink, you can come and drink this and you don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn enough merit in your life to secure this forgiveness. You just come and receive 
living water. How do I do it? Turn from your sin. Turn from those things that you see right here. Turn from being sexually immoral. Turn from idolatry. Turn from practicing magic arts. Turn from lying. Turn from unbelief. Turn from all of those things and by the grace of God, see Christ. And say, I believe. You confess with your mouth as a result of already having by the grace of God believed in your heart. And you receive the forgiveness of sins and with that everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, oh, we join, Lord. We join with the text that we just read and we say, Lord, even to Your Son who we know is returning, come. Come. Father, in the meantime, while we are here, we pray that more would hear the invitation to come. That they would come and receive rest so that they would never have to experience day and night without rest forever and ever and ever. Father, we pray that you would use us, Lord, and that you would use our prayers and that you would use our evangelism to be means to your appointed ends. And Father, just us asking, seeking, and knocking, Lord. I pray, Father, that whether it's those in this room tonight or whether it be those who come and populate this building on a Sunday morning, we pray, Father, that by your grace, you'd open the eyes of every person who is in this building at one point or another and does not know Christ. We would pray that you'd open up their eyes to the gospel. And Father, just as a result of knowing the terror of the Lord, we desire, Father, to be a means to your end by seeking to persuade men, by sharing the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would help us, as we've talked about in previous classes, to always, when we're considering the subject, treasure the grace that has saved us from what we deserve. And thank you for your Son who exhausted the wrath that we deserve. What an honor it is to be here tonight. Thank you for your word and how nourishing it is to our souls, even those things that are hard for us to take in. Uh, those things that are sweet and then those things that are hard and there's a bitterness to them, Lord. But yet at the same time, we rejoice in your justice and your revelation. And at the same time, our hearts are heavy. So Father, we pray that you would help us to have our minds renewed, aligned with yours, and that we would be busy about your work in the here and now, and that you'd use truth like this to protect us from falling away, even though our hope is knowing that you will always keep us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.